Hello, everybody. Welcome to Decadent Entertainment Podcast, where we combine all of our favorite things, including the likes of food, beverages, movies, friendship, just all of our favorite things, and we talk about them in not a particular order. Uh, so I'm Nick, and with me today is Truett, or I suppose I'm with Truett. Either way. Hello, everybody. My voice sounds good in your headphones or car. I hope. We have Joe Rogan's mics now. They're really spectacular. I, I think we need to set up a video or something like that, like Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, so that we can be making, you know how in all of his thumbnails on YouTube and things like that, he just has the most ridiculous face on, like, on all of them. They're just like so surprised and it's like, talking about MMA and it's like Joe Rogan it's like him punching some guy it's like when did that happen Jamie pull that up yeah <laughs> so I, tonight I I actually got a thing of ginger beer and so ginger beer not like alcoholic beer it's oh is that our alarm or is that just our pizza that's our pizza oh my gosh everybody we'll be back well welcome back everybody Nick and I just got back from eating a H-E-B frozen pizza, and we had to choose between cheese, pepperoni, meat lovers, or supreme, and at the end of the day, we ended up going with supreme because not only did it have olives and sausage and pepperoni and onions and jalapenos, but it had all of those things. You weren't supposed to start the dishwasher, but if you did, that's okay. Also, talking to your mic. I was just... That's the one rule. The one rule of the podcast. I'm not going to say something. I was... Say it into the mic. I didn't think the whole entire audience, the whole world needed to wonder with me whether or not I had started the dishwasher. Nick right now, Nick and I are in a hearty debate whether if he started the dishwasher or not. Just I'm going to go check. Just in case you're just joining us uh, on BBC Two. Nick closed the dishwasher, but he actually didn't start it. Okay. I, I was, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the dishwasher, so I wasn't sure if pushing it all the way in started it. or. My, my housemates last year, my downstairs was me and two friends. But the upstairs above me, actually, it was a different group of guys, but they were, they were friends enough that there was kind of a understood unity between our houses. And I never realized this, but they had a dishwasher upstairs. And a large portion of my college life was really just centered around washing dishes. Because I like to cook a lot. You know, it's one of those things where I'll, I'll cook and dirty up a bunch of stuff. But being... Being in a household without a dishwasher led to me just washing everything by hand. And I was talking to one of my housemates about how jealous I was or envious I was that they had a dishwasher. And they said, it's really not any easier. And I said, what do you mean? How is it not easier? And they said, the problem is whenever you have dirty dishes in there, you don't know what's clean and what's not. And I think that's really funny because when it's on, after it's off, they're clean. And before that, they're dirty. 
And I just, I think that this man, I think if this man had a better conception of how a dishwasher worked, I think his life might've been fundamentally better. But at the end of the day, I don't think he knew how a dishwasher worked. Well, were you sharing dishes with him too? Or was that like, or did you have your separate ones? Well, I think upstairs, I didn't, I didn't ever use their dishwasher at all, but upstairs they, they shared dishes. Oh, and I think okay. that some of the downstairs it, stuff got, it got was melded your, it, there. It was your neighbor. Right. Okay. But cause I would not want to be sharing, you know, hand wash dishes with somebody who thinks that hand washing dishes is just as easy as dishwashing your dishes well you really wouldn't i was i was actually cooking with a friend today and they have a very nice kitchen and one of the things you notice is just that every appliance and implement you need to use is really well made and i'm i'm used to teflon pans or different non-stick things that are coated so that stuff doesn't stick and like on top of that, obviously you need to use butter or olive oil or Pam, margarine, something like that to keep things from sticking on top of this coating. But these pans are just stainless steel. And I don't think they're non-stick and that stuff chemically isn't supposed to stick to them, but they're so high quality in that obviously we had olive oil or something and then we put a piece of bread to toast it on top of it. Um, not really toasting it. We were making a grilled cheese type sandwich. But when I was done, I was cleaning it and you literally just use a metal sponge to sheen everything off. And so you're actually just polishing the pan. Like everything that got stuck, you're removing a micro layer to clean that pan. But that, that is quality, quality implementation. Just like steel wool or? Yeah. So it was one of those things where I, I scrubbed it with a normal normal sponge for a bit, but he handed me the steel wool and said, you've just got to gotta polish it off, which makes, makes a lot of sense as far as something that's, that's well made and crafted, but I'd never, I'd never experienced anything like that. Kind of reminds me of like the cast iron pans where, you know, you're just really boiling away all of the germs or wiping away all the excess oil. And then everything that's left just adds to the seasoning of the pan. I think the thing is, I think that cast iron does add to the flavor of things. And I think that if maintained and kept clean, there, there is legitimate benefits and uses of it. But me personally, and probably you as well, my main experience with cast iron was through the Boy Scouts. And... They, they said that because you would boil water and everything stayed clean, this was a really sanitary and, and good thing for us to be using. And I think that on paper, that sounds great and might have even been true, but those things were filthy. Because we would, we would have these chuck wagons, right? Chuck boxes. Yeah. So a chuck box would be just a big, big box of wood, um, well, the box, the box is made of wood and there's these different compartments. And so there'd be tongs, there'd be spatulas, there'd be all of these different cooking implements, but they were communal. And so even if it was your patrol's, patrol's implements, they would be shared to the point that you could not count on the cleanliness of this. You know, I'm, I'm 23 and clean enough. I think Nick is too as a person, but I think that 12-year-old me, 12-year-old me is probably not nearly as clean and I'm probably above average on the clean scale anyways. And so I think that the, I think the sanitation and the hygiene of these is probably, probably questionable at the end of it.
Well, I remember I would always end up on on KP somehow. I think distinctly. What because, is KP? Uh, like Kitchen Patrol, four four hour patrol. So you know the people that end up cleaning up after everyone is done, but not really because I wanted to do it, and not really because I was forced into it, but only because no one else would clean properly, and I, as a person that that cares about the things that they, that that I ingest. I, I wanted my, my kitchenware to be uh, up, up to snuff, if you will. I feel like a subtle thing that happens in my family is that whenever one of us is more or less checked out of the conversation or the dinner, and it happens if there's guests, it happens if we're alone or, or whatever, that person will just start doing the dishes. And so we have an open concept kitchen where the kitchen and the living room where we eat is more or less open. So you're still in the conversation at that point, but I think that at a certain point, doing the dishes and cleaning is, it's a form of antisocial behavior, which I think is, is something I've observed. I don't so, know if that's... So you're stepping away from the conversation to join an antisocial social club? Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, something, something of that note, because you're still, you're still engaging with the dinner and with the, with the night and whatnot, but, you know, you've kind of decided that you're, well, not even decided. I think it's just one of those things where you, you run out of things to say and you run out of things to listen to. And so you look for things to pick up. You look for things to clean to kind of diffuse what you're trying to, to talk about and find. Yeah. And so I don't know. I've just I've noticed that. What did we drink tonight? What are we drinking tonight? So tonight we are drinking a ginger beer, which is sort of similar to a, a like a, a kind of a cross between like a ginger ale and a root beer. It's not an alcoholic beverage, but we are mixing it with Fireball, which is which for those that don't know, Fireball is like if you could imagine the the candy Fireball. Cinnamon. Yeah, it's very cinnamony. Cinnamon. Cinnamony. Yeah, whatever. But it's a whiskey that's that's flavored with cinnamon. Well, and it's it's spicy. But the thing is with the ginger beer is that you know ginger ale or some of these candies, if they're really distilled, in that it's it's just kind of a a syrup that's meant to replicate the taste of ginger. I think the spiciness can be lost, but in foods and things that are come straight from fresh ginger, there's, there's a definite spicy nature to it. And so this ginger beer that I picked up, it looks like a little bottle of champagne actually, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of ginger and I realized that it would be spicy. And so I, I just started thinking that fireball whiskey is similarly spicy. And so we, we mixed them and once it settled, I think it was it tasted like a like a spicy sprite or some sort of intense um, intense soda. What do, you, what do you mean by settle though? Well, so so right out of the can, Nick and I opened this ginger beer, and it's it's carbonated, so it's it's bubbling and whatnot, of course. And we pour it, and then we put a little bit of Fireball into it as well, and we both took a sip and just started coughing hysterically. And I think that it like was a good old fashioned like covid cough like, like a good old-fashioned good old-fashioned covid cough and the thing is i think that it was spicy but at the same time it was bubbling to the point that whenever we took a drink of it it not only sat in our stomachs but we inhaled it and so that we kind of had this 
this overarching absorption of this spiciness that it took us it took us a bit to get used to after we got through that though i think it was good i I definitely enjoyed it i thought it was delicious but i would have to let it sit if i was to make it to someone else yeah yeah i i think that the first drink of of a liquor or alcohol that someone had i think that fireball would be something good to try as like a as like a 21 year old or as a 21 year old among friends in a healthy healthy and safe environment of course but as a 21 year old i think it would be an interesting first thing to try because because of the spiciness there is a little bite and a little kick to it but it's well and it's really sugary and and kind of sweet in a way it really is sugary and sweet once you get used to it and so I think that the burn that you experience from that, it's similar to the burn of a normal whiskey or vodka or any other type of type of harder alcohol, but it, it gets you used to that. Yeah. Because I think that another thing that a lot of 21-year-olds that for the first time are, are trying a drink, Malibu is very, very popular. I think mm-hmm. that Malibu is especially popular among... High school sophomores, 21-year-old high school sophomores, but like high school sophomore girls at parties that are 21, I think really enjoy Malibu. And I think the thing is, is Malibu is a coconut flavored sweet rum. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing is, is Malibu is sweet, which I think masks the taste of the rum a fair bit. But whenever you have something that's not Malibu, there's still this kickingness and you're, you're not used to it not being sweet. But the thing is, with the fireball and the burn of it, I think it kind of gets you gets you accommodated with the with the bite that some of that stuff has. So if Malibu is for twenty one year old sophomore high school sophomore girls, what would you say the the fireball is for? Fireball is for for I don't even know. I think that I think that fireball is just for for discovering something. You know, fireball <laughs> is. Fireball is just something something to try. I do think I do think it was interesting though as we were drinking the our concoction that you know I was experiencing this you know I I felt it in my in my nose a little bit like how spicy it was like you know when you're eating like super spicy wings or that sort of thing you'll cry and your your nose will run and it, you're really experiencing the spice like all over your face. It's crazy how connected all of the parts of your face are. You know, like when you go to somebody, when you go to a doctor for your ear, you're going to a doctor that specializes in ears, nose, and throats because they're just so connected. And it's, why why are they connected? Why are they not separate? I Your body, when you really think about it, your body is just kind of like a gaggle and uh, a gaggle and a loose grouping of tubes at the end of the day. So, you know, your, your ear tubes go into your brain tubes and your no- Well, I don't know that your ear tubes go into your, your brain tubes, but your nose tubes and your mouth tubes are actually very, very fundamentally, um, fundamentally simple. If you're not 21 years old, don't drink. I mean, that's, that just goes to... That's or we'll call the police. I I won't. I won't call. The, I wouldn't call the cops. I'll let you. But. 
if if you like came into my house and I walked home and you were throwing a party and I didn't know you and you were in my house, I think. Okay, okay. Say for instance, you're with a collection of friends, right? You're in your house with a collection of friends, and you know one of your friends invites a friend over, okay, and he happens to bring, say, a girl with him, okay, and. You know, you're all 21, you're all sharing a beer and that sort of thing. And then uh, they come in, they sit down on your couch, you know, everyone's talking, everyone's having a good time. Uh, And, you know, you offer uh, the friend of a friend and the friend of a friend's girlfriend a beer, right? And they say no, because they're 18. How does that make you feel? It makes me and feel the friend like, of the friend is foot is is shoeless at this point. Oh my goodness! So so Nick is Nick is hearkening and Nick is implying this this story, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell it a little more directly. <laughs> we were we were in Austin hanging out, and we're we're all in college at this point, right? I don't I don't know what year we were, but very much in college, and it's probably it's got to be eight o'clock. Because this guy comes over with his girlfriend or lady that he's been seeing. And first off, the gentleman, let's call him, what was his name? His name was Heath. Let's call him Heath. Heath isn't wearing shoes, right? And so first off, you're in a house. Not having shoes on, fair enough. That might even be polite. This guy didn't take off his shoes to come into the house. Yeah, no, he just didn't have shoes on. He doesn't wear shoes anywhere he goes. Well, and he was he was really proud of that. Like, the fact that he didn't wear shoes, not only, I mean, obviously that's a fact about him, but that was a defining penchant of his life. I would say it's the only fact about him. Well, other than his name that I, that I came to understand. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is with Heath is that Heath would go to grocery stores in other places in public also not wearing shoes. And whenever he was approached and told he needed to, apparently he had researched the legal documents to the point that he knew the legal codes and he knew the health codes. And so apparently, according to his interpretation of the laws, you didn't need to wear shoes. And not only that, he had a laminated card with the subsection of the law which clarified this this implementation that allowed him to not wear shoes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that I think that if you're so aware of the specific legal ramifications around something to the point that you need to carry around a laminated card delineating that, I think first off, you need to you need to take a real look at yourself. But second off, I did not like him. I did not like him at all. Well, I mean, how much energy does it take to look up the legal codes? I mean, not even you're you're not a lawyer, you're not anything like that. Like that makes it that makes it even harder to get through all of that lengthy and verbose like documentation. Well, and I'm not willing would, to I'm not willing to take his interpretation of the legal code as he's put it as valid cuz he's just looking for that loophole to get him through it. He's looking for this specific thing. And and to get on with Heath, right? The reason we got onto this tangent to begin with, Heath brings this lady with him. And so I don't know if someone offered her a drink or what, but we I think heard it was just her, getting late into the night. It or, was late into the night and I, 
I think it was probably 10. And she said, yeah, we've got to, we've got to get home. And this girl we're with says, why are you in high school? And she says, yes, not, not jokingly. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where the, the girl we were with obviously just asked that sarcastically and in jest, but she, I, I don't know, man, like weirdo Heath not wearing shoes also dates high school girls in college, which is weird. Yeah. Heath is like, Heath would be our age. Yeah, you know. Heath would be Ari. So now. he he would be like a college student dating a high schooler. That's that's weird. I I think it's one of those things where once you're once you're an adult enough, you know, like I feel like we're 23 and we're we're adults to the point where I think we're we're more or less autonomous and developed. But I think it's one of those things where the people that I know personally that have dated older people, first off, Everyone that I ever knew in high school or early college that dated a weirdly older guy, they were always 23. I don't know if you noticed that or ever encountered this, but 23 was like the standard age of someone inappropriately old for people to date. But I remember thinking that was weird at the time. Mm -hmm. And not even weird because five years or two years or whatever is necessarily that long of time. Because, you know, some people marry someone that's six years older than them. But when they're 30, you know, or, or when they're 40 or whatnot, when age becomes a lot less, less important. But the person that you know right now that would consider dating someone in high school, that's our age, that is not a human being that A, should be in a relationship with anyone, or B, be in a relationship with someone that, I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, I mean... And I remember in high school, like, meeting these people that would be dating older people. It's just, you know... It's gross. These, yeah, these, these people, these people that are dating the high, the high schoolers, they're, it's not, they're not the best people in life. It's, well, I think, that, I think that whenever you're 16, right, you get a car and a license, and so you can drive all your buddies around. And so you're a baller. You're a straight baller. So everyone wants to hang out with you because you're cool at that time. You know, and I think that, I think that, I don't think that there's necessarily anything like that directly at 18, but I think at 21, at that point, you're old enough to be, you know, to be an adult who can have a beverage, which I think also gives you a certain stature above above your peers and other other people but when you're 23 you know you have your own place you have a car you have this autonomy but at the same time it's i don't i don't know like it's a natural development but like the swag and your your like I don't know. You shouldn't date high schoolers if you're 23. Well, and I think, I guess what I was trying to get at was that a lot of the high schoolers kind of view this 23-year-old or, you know, 19-year-old or, or, you know, whatever they are, the older person, they always view them as being kind of cool. You know, like, oh, you know, Susie's dating a, Susie's dating a, a sophomore in, in college. You know, it's like, yeah, but... Susie's boyfriend is probably a loser in college and can't get a college girlfriend. This is, he is clearly settling for Susie. 
Susie's boyfriend studies business administration. Wait, wait, check this out. That was the sound of a raspberry sour ale by Martin House Brewing Company. True love, made in Texas by Texans. Take a sip. Take a sip. Take a sip. That was a disgusting sip. Well, that was, that was horrible. Well, I think that I'm going to leave that in because I think that's very important. But the <laughs> first few podcasts of this that we did, we we were te- we were trying to eat and drink things because I think that food and drink is important to me. I think that that's something I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and whatnot. It literally is you. It literally is me. Like the food and drinks have become me. But we would eat and drink these things in the midst of our conversations. And so editing through those, there were quite a quite a bit of like slurping and drinking and gurgling noises, which some people tune in specifically for. Not not to our podcast, of course, because we're not at the level of fame that we weren't yet. But what did you call it? Muckraking? Uh, no, so a mukbang. Uh, it's like... Mukbang. So I, you know, I've, I've definitely gone down some rabbit holes on the internet. And I've stumbled across this this one. It it's this Korean, which is why it's it's kind of a, a foreign word. But uh, it's it's originally this Korean. It's kind of a a voyeuristic sort of thing where th- you basically watch somebody eat their food. And I I don't know if our listeners are are familiar with ASMR, but it's kind of like that but more specifically with food. Well, in ASMR, it's a type of media and video where someone will will talk or, or whisper or do things at a certain frequency that to some people elicits a tingling response. I don't know if it's in their minds or, or if it's somewhat physical, but you kind of get a reaction. Yeah, my and, understanding is that it's, it's kind of a more soft-spoken or, or, you know, kind of sounds that that do kind of generate the your tingles down your spine. Like I think it goes from like your scalp down. Well, and uh, so, so because of that, there's tons of YouTube videos and pages of people whispering or people eating odd stuff and clinking like ta- tapping mics. And people are really into weird stuff like that. Yeah. But the, the muckraking mukbang mukbang I don't know what you're saying. But. Well, so so muckraking, I, I don't remember the period in history, but muckraking was was a period of investigative journalism okay. where they would they would they would rake up muck, which would be like bad stuff to bring to the forefront of people and, and bring up. So mm. the so the muckrakers would be these investigative journalists. And that I'm mistaking for mukbang, which is clearly a different thing that we're talking about clearly. right now. Clearly. But muck as the root word. <laughs> stays stays consistent but yeah i mean the mukbang it's not it's not intended to give somebody you know the tingles or anything like that like an like asmr but it it's similar it's just kind of this weird it's it's just a very strange thing to kind of find it's really strange and they get a lot of views like some I, people's full-time job is just m- eating they get millions of views from you know it's just this korean girl on there eating a squid that's still moving around on her plate and when she puts the tentacle in her mouth it wiggles you know or something like that and it's just 
It's really kind of disturbing, but I recommend watching at least one video. As the as the producer and editor of this podcast, I think I'm going to start trying to keep organized time codes of the things we're talking about. But furthermore, I think if we do talk about anything specific, I owe it to you, our listener, to give you to give you ways to reach out and to find what we happen to be talking about. So I will include a link to this lovely lady eating a live squid for some reason. <laughs> That's weird, man. You don't want to judge people, but what, like what? That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are definitely very interesting things that you find on the internet. But I think the, I think the fundamental psychology behind it is that eating is such a social thing for humans. I mean, everyone, you know, gathers around the hearth at the end of the day and sits around the table and enjoys this meal as a family and all talks over the meal. Or, I mean, even in the in your, in your nuclear family, right, you end the day by, you know, asking little Billy how his day was at school. It's it's the only chance for families to get really get to connect, you know, is, is over dinner. So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, hey, you know, my business partner, let's go get lunch and talk over our, our deal or something like that over lunch. It's, it's social, food is a very social thing. So if you're eating lunch alone, you know, you can turn on a mukbang video and see somebody else eat maybe something similar and kind of get to share your food experience with that person. I think that is the psychology. Well, and I think that's why something like podcasting or a lot of vlogging, I think, has that appeal. My good friend Patrick said that podcasting, when you listen to a podcast, a lot of the times it's like hanging out with friends when you don't want to hang out with friends. <gasps> that was gross. I just burped, but I did it into my arm. Um... But but it's one of those things where, you know, we're just kind of talking off the cusp and whatnot, but obviously this is a more developed conversation than I would be having sitting on my home alone. I believe it's cuff. Cuff. Wait. I think it's cuff. Oh, you're talking off the cuff, not think, the cusp. I think it is. Well, that kind of reminds me. Correct the, me if I'm wrong. But. Nah, no, no, no way of finding out. <laughs> well, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting, actually, is the expression getting down to brass tacks. That obviously started somewhere, but I looked it up online. There's not a very, like, solid or, like, set upon reason that expression exists, which yeah. I think is interesting because, like, let's get down to brass tacks sounds so official, but I don't think there's actually a, I don't think there's actually a reason behind that one. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like the, you know, like I really like expressions like that. It, for some reason, they've become so ingrained in the culture. Like, oh, you want to go grab a cup of Joe? Like, who's Joe, and why am I drinking a cup of him? Who is Joe? Well, you you made this point about British television, and I mean British, but also different different cultures. I mean, us being American men obviously have a certain way of talking and vocabulary. And so, you know, British shows or Australian shows or any sort of dialect that's English, but, but fundamentally different, we share the base understanding of the language. And 
you know, not the not the rhetoric, but we we understand the syntax, we understand the structure, and we we understand the base parts of the language, but the vocabulary is so different. Mm -hmm. And so in a British show or an Australian show, something will be said that you recognize the structure of it as a sentence, but at the same time, you don't recognize the vocabulary that would be used in it. And so so you're kind of left deciphering it, which I think to me makes different cultures seem, I don't know, it, it, it's a different different way to engage with a language that you already speak. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because they'll take words that are words to you and just use them in a completely different, and give them a completely different meaning. Like I think one example is, we used to be pretty big fans of the show, I mean, kind of as teenagers, uh, called The Inbetweeners. It was kind of about this group of, of misfit British teens and, and kind of their weird escapades that they would end up falling on. I feel like they were they were our British loser counterparts. Okay. I mean, that kind of implies that we were losers, but... Never mind. We're really <laughs> cool. <laughs> My sleeves are rolled up right now. Uh, yeah, I mean that just that just goes to show. But uh, I remember specifically they would often there was one character on there named Will, and Will apparently had a, I guess, kind of attractive mother, and all of his friends would always tell Will. Will's mom was pretty hot. All of his friends would tell Will that his mom was very fit, and if you're unfamiliar with it, you might come to think that will's mom does a lot of yoga or you know does quite a bit of running on the side or something like that but that's not necessarily true she just she's fit she's just fit why well i think that i think that one of the things i've noticed is that you know having having come out of college and high school i'm i'm very aware of incoming slang and, you know, not not uniformly, but, you know, I, I watch stuff on the Internet. I, I read forums and stuff to where whenever a new word comes out, I'm I'm more or less aware of it. But I think that sometimes whenever you use a word like that to someone that doesn't know the connotation, it's it's strange, you know. And so I think that I think that being aware of that, there's certain expressions and whatnot that have not become part of the popular vernacular yet that you're you're aware of to a certain extent that you don't necessarily you can't necessarily communicate with older people. But I've realized that I think people really enjoy it when you use words that they don't understand if you use it as though they do. Because at that point, you're kind of assuming that they're in the like, they're in the know, mm -hmm. you know? So I feel like that's kind of a polite way to bring someone into a different, a different vocabulary, I guess. Well, and the human brain is really good at picking up on that sort of thing and deciphering that sort of lingo and, and jargon and making sense of the sentence without it, you know? Well, and that's what a big part of standardized testing is, is, you know, here's this sentence with this word that you're not familiar with or, or might on, on, on edge be unfamiliar with, but given the context of the sentence and the, the implications and the, the setting, what do you think it means? 
And so I think that's a very logical thing to assess as far as a, a standardized assessment, just because it gives you gives you the ability to exercise that skill, which could be valuable. Have you watched any movies recently? Um, so I've actually been watching Frozen 2 a lot. And it, it's one of those things. I just finished watching The League, which is a, which is a show I liked. But, you know, sometimes I'm not really wanting to get into a new show or an idea. I'm just in the mood where I want to put something on. And I like Frozen 2 a lot. I think it's it's a great movie. But what I like about it is it's so easy to watch and to listen to and just to experience. And I think that one of the things that I like about Frozen 2 or that I think is interesting is right now in 2020... That's the first movie that a lot of young people see. Because, you know, if you have kids and you're at home, you're not going to take them to the theaters to see Tenet. You know, you're, you're not going to go out and make a big deal of it. You're just going to put whatever kids movie is popular and happens to be on, which Frozen 2 is ostensibly one of the most popular children's movies of all time. But I think that the creators to make something like that and to have that responsibility upon them I mean, I think that you have to make something that tells a story, but in a way that someone who's not aware of the conventions or genres of storytelling at all can engage with. And so I think it's one of those things where that sounds simple, but I think that if you watch anything, you're aware of certain cues and conventions that shape your watching of it. And so... So Frozen 2 to me is just something that's easy to put on because obviously it's been made so that so many people can engage with it. But I think that I think that it's very compelling because of that. I also I love the animation technology of it. And I I think that that might sound like a simple, simple thing to engage with. But I've actually been reading a book about the development of the animation techniques behind the movie. And one of the things, Frozen is, it's a digitally animated movie that takes place in the snow. And so obviously the characters have costumes and different outfits that they wear. But before the designers were even able to decide what these characters were going to wear in the settings, they would go into the snow with cameras and fabrics and see how those fabrics interacted with the light against the snow in the environments the movie would be set in. And not not one or two fabrics. They would take hundreds and hundreds of different fabrics and see the way they interacted with in the light and near snow just to decide what would be aesthetic and what would be a logical thing to shape the clothing and the outfits of the characters. That's amazing. And so it's one of those things where I, I like engaging with the technical and the development sides of art like that. And so I think it's very interesting for me to, to see that. And not only that, but to see the elements that you put into a film like this to keep it to keep it compelling and engaging, I think that there's a lot to learn from something like this. Because if you if you watch it, any frame that you're looking at is is gorgeous. And you know, I mean, you can you can pretend to disagree with me or whatnot, but it's it's such a visually pleasing movie. And I think it's one of those things where watching it, I was really, really enjoying it and paying attention to the animation. And I was thinking, if you were to show your kids, like, I don't even know, some random cartoon off TV in the 80s, 
If you were to show your kids this now, they would, they would have no idea how to engage with it just because the technology and the storytelling and everything has developed so much further. And I think that a lot of the times people get rooted in the idea that a particular medium or moment in art or history is particularly important or incredible. And so, you know, kids these days don't listen to the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. And so they're probably a bunch of nimrods. Or, you know, yes, kids these days don't grow up, grow up watching Casablanca. What a bunch of dumbos. You know, they don't understand black and white. They just, they need color to engage with it. Or they need, they need sound. Or every, every which way, I think that people have a way of rationalizing that the art that they grew up with and engaged with is somehow better or stronger than anything that comes before it. But I think that at a certain point, successful art is something that can communicate at a base level something thematic and underlying about people that speaks to them. And so something like Frozen 2, I mean, I think you could make fun of that and say it's just a dumb Disney movie, but the fact that you can communicate themes, ideas, and feelings to a group of people who has no context of how a film or how a story even operates, I think that's exceedingly difficult. And I think that to me, storytelling as a mode in something that strives to do that, I think that's fascinating. Because if you look at Shakespeare's tales or any of the, any of the fairy tales or, or stories that we're, we're used to hearing time and time again, I think that a lot of them express similar ideas. You know, you should be true to yourself. You shouldn't cheat people. There's, there's consequences if you do bad things. I think that a lot of these ideas come up time and time again but I think that at a certain point, that's because there's universal truths of existence. You know, you probably should be good to people. You should probably like yourself and you probably shouldn't, I don't know, like you shouldn't kill people. That's probably not a cool thing to do. And I think that the way things like this show up time and time and time again throughout history, I think that storytelling is a way to make these ideas and greater themes digestible to a wider audience. And so studying something like Frozen to me, I think it's a great way to both examine the, the filmmaking technology, but also the thematic, I don't know, just the thematic underpinnings of what makes something compelling to begin with. And so I've been watching Frozen 2 quite a bit lately. <laughs> what have you been watching, Nick? Uh, well, let's see here. The other day I watched two movies in one day. One was... Uh, Up in Smoke by Cheech and Chong, uh, if you're familiar with that one. Um, and then yes. the other movie that I watched was Boys in the Hood. Um, so those were those were the two movies that I think I watched this week. What did I, was, you? I was pretty satisfied with both. I think uh, Cheech and Chong, their movie, I mean... It's exactly what you would expect. It's exactly what you would expect. It's it's. Cheech and Chong are are two marijuana enthusiasts from the 1970s who get into hijinks, as is my limited understanding. <laughs> yeah. So I guess in this movie they, yeah, just in their different sort of stone states, they uh, kind of run into some different shenanigans, and it, it's kind of all of these things that are really happening to them. Obliv- ob- obliv- ob- Oblivion, Elder Scrolls Obliviously. 4. 
obliviously. Obliviously. They are these things are having to, happening to them obliviously and they are just you know they're they're going down the highway and they don't know that they you know when they stopped to pick up hitchhikers they just completely lost the police that were just chasing them or something like that you know that they weren't even cognizant of yeah they had no idea that the police were after them so for those of you at home listening to this what what nick is just describing is actually it's a literary technique known as dramatic, dramatic irony. irony and so dramatic irony is whenever you as the person who's engaging with the story are aware of information fundamental to the situation and plot of the characters that they themselves are unaware of. And so the, the comedy and the humor that would arrive from a situation like this could be, could be thought of and understood as an implementation of dramatic irony. Uh, there's other kinds of irony too. Isn't there like a situational yeah, irony. so there's there's like three kinds, if I remember right. I don't I irony and ironic is one of those words that people love to use incorrectly. Well in school they always kind of use that Alanis Morissette song as as kind of the, the counterexample. But can you sing it for us? Uh well she just kind of you do not want to hear me sing. It's Isn't that I R O N I C K that's actually a Bob Burnham song, but I don't I don't know it off the top of my head. Oh, there's a great there's a great bit for it, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna steal it as my joke. But he says, you know, it's pretty ironic because my my grandmother's zodiac sign was Cancer, and she was actually killed by a giant crab. And I I always thought that was a really good joke. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Alanis Morissette song is basically like, it's like rain on your wedding day or things like that. It, it's just a series. She doesn't Unfortunate list, events. She doesn't list anything that's actually ironic. She just lists things that are... It's, it just sucks, you know. It's unfortunate. Yeah, but it's a great educational tool for uh, high school English students. Did you ever watch Hoodwinked? Hoodwinked, no. See, I think Hoodwinked is one of the most fundamental things I watched as a kid that let me know... Not really let me know, but I think kind of shaped the way I engaged with with media and narratives. Hoodwinked is, it's the story of Little Red Riding Hood, right? And so Little Red Riding Hood, as you know it, has a specific structure and outlay that you're used to following. But what this does is it takes the story of Little Red Riding Hood in a courtroom. And so you get Little Red Riding Hood's perspective, you get the wolf's perspective, you get some old lady's perspective and a, a lumberjack and all all sort of different characters and again i don't i don't remember the specifics of it but it really kind of made me realize how how different people's frames of view in in setting up the the rhetoric behind stories can be so variable and i think i don't think the animations held up particularly well so i think that it hasn't stayed in the public psyche as much as i think it would but I think that would be a great movie to remake or at least explore some of those same theoretical underpinnings. Well, what is what is hoodwinked again? That's like when you get bamboozled. It's like you're you're getting robbed, but like in a willingly like you bam bamboozled is not an academic term such as dramatic irony or onomatopoeia, but I will say you got bamboozled. You got tricked. You got punked. 
But it, it's very specific, Wrecked. though, right? I thought obliterated, destroyed. I don't know. I really don't know. Nicholas Mansky has busted out his trusty iPhone with a black outlining case and a translucent backing. Okay. To literally deceive the tricks on me. Would you say that into the mic? To quite literally deceive or... <laughs> so the word hoodwinked. Deceive or trick someone. Nick, what does the word hoodwinked mean? It, it means to, to bamboozle. <laughs> to... to I I keep trying to make Jeopardy jokes because Nick engages with the with the show of Jeopardy a lot, but I don't. I know that it's a question and it's reverse, but I don't really I don't really understand it well enough to ever fit in the jokes that I'm trying to formulate. <laughs> I think in general, if you just say you know you have to phrase that in the in the form of a question, mm-hmm. it often it gets the vibe across. Well, see, I my really only understanding of Jeopardy is from school because in PowerPoint, you could actually set up Jeopardy matches where people would have to answer questions relevant to whatever they were learning. So like in middle school, a lot of the times, say we were reading Huckleberry Finn or whatnot, different plot points of that could be organized in the context of a Jeopardy game. And so you would have to follow the conventions and those ideas to play it. But that was my only experience with Jeopardy. And a lot of the teachers I had wouldn't even have the discipline to keep the form and the factor of Jeopardy consistent. So it would it would devolve from the the backwards questioning to just just kind of a medium of, of instilling trivia into a into an learned body. Well, I mean, it's just it's a fun game by itself, and I think any sort of game that you can introduce in education is helpful in just. In, in kind of pounding those facts down. Oh, I think I think absolutely. If you think about the way technology is going to change the way kids learn, like rather than looking at a two-dimensional illustration of an atom or a solar system in a book, we now have the technology on an iPad or some other computer to expand and move and really comprehend in a physical space these, these ideas and concepts that used to be wholly abstract. And so I think technology and games and just different elements of teaching and educating children, I think that you can't underestimate how much further different technologies develops these things. Hey, Nick, how do you feel about a bathroom break? I was just thinking the same thing. Well, so after that bathroom break, we just want to jump you guys back in. I yeah. I was at Whole Foods today, as I as I do. I got a I got a six pack of assorted soaps, and so for all of my life, not even adult life, I think the only thing I've ever really bathed myself in is Irish Spring, and you know, obviously, you come to love and to revere this. I don't even know what an Irish spring smells like, but it's what I smell like after I shower. But it's uh, at Whole Foods, they had a six pack of, of assorted, assorted shampoos, not shampoos, soap bars. And so I, I got it because I've actually never really, really tried any other types of soap, but it'll give me an opportunity to sample different gourmet, um, not high level, but you know, kind of artisanal soaps in a in a manner much cheaper than if I was to have to commit to a to a whole bar. But Nick disagrees. Well, 
it's just so much cheaper getting getting Irish Spring and like you know, I don't think you're going to get that much more enjoyment out of buying a $20 bar of soap as opposed to buying a 50 cent bar of soap. You know, you're still just getting showered. Wait, Nick, hear me out. Spearmint lemongrass. Is that the only thing that you have to say? Is that your only sea rebuttal? Sea salt kelp. Are you just going to list all of Sand the flavors? Sand and sea. French lavender. Coconut lemon. Clarifying charcoal, I I do not endorse this last one, but almond goat's milk. Well, that one's just all natural, right? I think that coconut lemon and French lavender actually do sound pretty good. I think I think I actually got into soap making on accident last um, last summer. Let me guess, you went down some rabbit holes on YouTube. I I did go down. I, I, I did like go down two years some, ago, wasn't it? Well, so what it was, I was working editing this this documentary in Colombia, right? And as assistant editor, you have to sift through quite a lot of footage and you have to look productive the entirety of the time. But I got to a point when I'd gotten through it enough that I felt like I had spare time. But if I ever got on my phone or checked my email, I would get... I would get harangued by my supervisor. And so I realized if I was watching videos on YouTube of things that looked like the documentary I was working on, I got a pass. And so I actually ended up spending a lot of time watching, I'm gonna forget the name now, the girl's name is Katie, um, Royal Ocean Soaps, Royal, I okay, I completely forget and I'm going to look it up later and put it into the middle of this. A quick note from the future. The soap maker's name is Katie Carson and the soap brand is Royalty Soaps. But long story short, it's just this this sweet lady in Texas that makes artisanal soaps. And so instead of having 50,000, you know, whatever the soap we were just delineating, there there's probably thousands of those made at once you're seeing this woman with two by fours making, you know, like a 12 pack of soap that only one type exists of. Mm -hmm. And I never actually made a soap, but I really liked the idea of making a soap. And in one night they, well, so you know when Kanye West drops a pair of Yeezys, people line up around the block. You know, there's these drops and it's a whole cultural event. Similar, similar to the PS5 right now. Nick is coughing from the from the beverage we made again. But but people line up. And I found out to buy her soaps, you had to be on the ball at the time of launch. And so one time I actually did get a couple bars I, I got on. And I got to say, it's not that that could be the only thing I ever showered with. But using something to clean myself that I'd seen someone put every specific ingredient in, I feel like that gave me a level of not even personality, but a relationship with this soap that I, I, I don't even think I could fully explain, but it was. That kind of reminds me of like hype beast culture a little bit, like, like Supreme and, and things like that. I was actually explaining Supreme to my, my parents the other day. Cause I think what is Supreme Nick? <laughs> well, so 
I, I was reading the paper the, the other the other day that I think Supreme sold for like two billion dollars. Wait, so just just before you get it, into it, Supreme is a fashion a, label. Yeah, it's it's a clothing, and I'll let you. Yeah, it's it's a fashion label that kind of their trademark is this sort of very simple athletic clothing, very very casual wear, street wear. Um, but they they don't really do too much flashy things. They just kind of put their label, which is this red with white Futura print, and they just put it on there. And it always says Supreme. There's yeah, no it, it there's no says, deeper message, but it's Supreme. You're it, wearing it. You it know? just says Supreme. And then basically what they do is they keep their supplies very limited. They only have like 30, 40 stores worldwide. And basically what you do is they'll drop the they'll put up the sh- their their latest uh hoodie right and they'll sell it for five hundred dollars a thousand dollars a hoodie something like that and well so so actually one thing that i think you are misunderstanding that i actually think is something i'd never thought of uh-huh. but how supreme makes money and keeps a brand the the hoodies and everything aren't disproportionately or ridiculously expensive for a high fashion hoodie but the way they make them so expensive is to constrict the supply of them to an extreme amount so so for instance they might drop a shirt that sells for you know whether it's fifty dollars or a hundred dollars for a t-shirt that's a lot more than the average t-shirt but mm-hmm. if you're looking at fashionable in in high high quality clothing that's not a ridiculous amount given what something like that would cost. Yeah. But because they only make 50 and constrain the supply, there's a market of people that literally camp around the clock to get those particular items. Well, yeah. And so there's such an infinite scarcity that all of those products then become more valuable in the aftermarket in a way that necessitates the next thing they put out will be bought similarly. Well, that's that's the whole point of the hype beast culture is that it 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 is so scarce that it is an aftermarket thing. So they'll sell their five hundred dollar hoodie or or however expensive a thousand dollars. Somebody will buy that, you know, just by chance because it sells out in a in a minute. It sells out in just seconds after they put it up. They'll buy that and then they'll put it on eBay and they'll sell this hoodie. It's it's just a hoodie. They'll sell it for. or something ridiculous ridiculous amounts or supreme will come out with red bricks they're just bricks not not a joke they will actually print supreme on a brick and they will sell those and people are just so invested in the hype of of the company that they buy bricks they have no use for and it's just a way to say we can get people to buy bricks. You and, know. They, and they can and people do, which makes the bricks and, more valuable. And they still have an aftermarket value after. Like, well, I, I really like, I would say higher end athletic wear. You know, stuff like, stuff like some of Nike's lines or, or Lululemon or Puma, some of the just nicer athletic and synthetic fabrics I tend to enjoy. And... I think it's one of those things where even the best shirts and, and pants and things like that, there's kind of a ceiling for how much a piece of clothing can actually cost. 
you know, and I feel like the the products and the the metals and plastics they use across brands are similar enough that there's a basic level those things cost. But I think with the hype beast stuff or the ultra high fashion where the 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 quality is almost assumed, the prices can go go crazy. So I think I think assumed is actually a good way to put it because yeah. this shirt or these pants I feel like five people could touch or feel and come to a reasonable agreement about the quality of it, right? But if you have a brick or a random red shirt or something like that, so much of its value is going to be contingent on how much how much value you assume its creators put onto it. And so I think that what happens with these things is they can get infinitely expensive just by lieu of being the same, if not inferior materials. Yeah. My biggest, it's, my biggest flex though in the, in the fashion world. Do you have and, you a, know, do you have a bape? Well, so I, I do like trendier clothing. I like, I like new stuff, but I've never really been the kind of person that thinks, wow, that shirt's $2,000. Like it must be better. You know, I think that there's obviously degrees and tiers of these things, but I think that past a certain point, it just becomes absurdity. But that said, Tyler, the creator, has a, a brand called Golf. And it's similar to Supreme in that people, people like it a lot. And there's a, there's a huge aftermarket value, but without being particularly expensive. So I, and again, it, expensive being relative to that sort of clothing and how it would be made. You know, mm -hmm. a, a t-shirt from Walmart's obviously going to be cheaper, but fitting into that kind of production and aesthetic world so i have a jacket from them that cost me 130 dollars. so it's like a bomber it's it's pink it's synthetic suede it has a really cool purple lining in it and i just thought it was cool you know yeah. obviously obviously that's an expensive jacket but it's one of those things that i really reacted with and i i was not familiar with the brand going in you know i'd heard of tyler the creator and I guess I'd heard him say golf wing in his songs, but I didn't yeah. really know and understand it. So I just bought it because I thought it was cool, right? I just bought it new at the store. It turns out they only made like 500 of those. And so they sell for like six or 700 bucks on eBay. <laughs> and I really like that I've never even considered selling it. It's just like I have like a considerably more expensive jacket just based on pure coincidence. Yeah. And the fact that I don't like worship that or like put any value into that because I already have the jacket and I just wear it. I feel like that's a power move because <laughs> it's like someone could be a nerd about it. But like if I wash my hands and spill dirt on it and someone's like, dude, you got like dirt on your jacket. I'd be like. Yeah. So. So what? It's just a jacket. Well, it's it's like these shoes that that you gave me a while back. Wait, I think, actually, I think we got to talk about these shoes. They're like, they're hilarious. What a what a funny meme. It's it's okay. It gets great too because I get asked so many questions about my shoes. Like, I for reference here because this is a non visual uh, means of of communicating medium yeah this is not a visual medium uh my shoes i think there are nike airs air something i don't do you know they're they're hurricanes is that what they're called okay so it's it's hurricane in 
I don't know if it's Italian, it's some other language. This is gonna make some sneaker snob very mad. That well, so <laughs> I I worked at the Bonnaroo Music Festival two years ago. So it must have been 2018. And you know, it was three hundred dollars for a two-day ticket. And I saved money supposedly by working at the camp to make that. And so for two days, Bonnaroo is a music festival in Tennessee. And so 50,000 people gather from around the Midwest and that region into this festival to camp in the woods and to listen to people play music. And so 50,000 campers make a lot of trash. And so for two days following the festival, me and my cohorts were responsible for cleaning up all of the trash. And surprisingly, in several, not even one, but several different campsites, I found boxes of new to lightly used upper scale sneakers. And so I found some Nike Air Force Ones. I found some Again, I don't I don't know sneakers super well, but I did find some very expensive ones. These these being included, I found a pair of a somewhat sullied white Huracans for Nick. Yeah. And you know, I I ran them in the in the washer with bleach to make them look nice, but they're probably $300 shoes new yeah. or what that person paid for them. And they were just people just left them in their campsites. Like <laughs> I don't even know. But I think it's funny cuz I'll wear them around occasionally and like I'll just be wearing them over to a friend's house and I'll walk in and I'll be like, dude, are those Huracans? And it's like, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Like, do they look like them? And they're like, dude, I think those are Huracans. And it's like, well, yeah, no, I just, my friend gave them to me. Like he found them in a field somewhere. And it's so, true. So like, I've just been sounds, wearing them. <laughs> it sounds like a joke. Well, I think that's, I, I like sneakers a lot. I don't really research or, or learn about them, but I'll see a pair that I enjoy the design and aesthetics of enough. So like I bought, I bought these shoes the other day and these, these aren't crazy exciting or anything, but I randomly bought a pair of teal Adidas one time and this guy saw me on the street and he was like, dude, I can't believe you got them before they ran out. Like, that's crazy. Like, did you get them secondhand? And, you know, I mean, they were probably a hundred bucks for a pair of shoes or whatever, but I don't know what this guy was willing to pay for them. You should have sold them right then and there. You should have been a heath and walked home barefoot. That's hilarious. That's, <laughs> that's really funny. I, that's good. That's good comedy. <laughs> another note from the future. At this point, the recorder powered off. So we had another short intermission. What were we talking about? We're talking about sneakers. Oh, no, but the thing is with sneakers is just some people will buy a pair of shoes that they're so excited about that they then won't wear. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if you buy something like a shoe with a specific purpose in mind and you don't let it use its function, like you're not actually getting what you need from a shoe in the way you would normally. Well, I think this really all is kind of like that. It's all part of the hype beast culture. And I think nothing sums it up better than, I don't know if you ever listened to the song, All Gold Everything. By, by Trinidad James. By Trinidad James. Dude, shining like Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64. Is that a line in the song? I don't, 
Something like that. Okay. It's good. It's but good. There, There is a line in the song where he's talking. He says, hype beasts, we know about you. Don't buy shoes unless they're popular. And I don't think anything sums things up better than that. Just because they're not buying them because they like them or because they think they'll find some sort of utility out of them. They're buying them because everyone else is buying them. And that's, that's really what it all boils, at, boils down to. Well, I think what happens sometimes is a rapper or famous celebrity will wear something and then people will get obsessed with that specific thing. And I think a lot of the times it'll be a piece of clothing that's obviously interesting and well-made, but it then becomes the most like desirable piece of clothing around but the person that was wearing that, let's say it's a $1,000 shirt, right? Let's say it's a $1,000 shirt that just happened to cost that. They were probably just wearing it because they re- like they wear really nice shirts and have infinite access to money. You know, so for of a $1,000 shirt, if you were then to, to assume Kanye West wore that or, or someone popular, so we need to now go out and buy it, then it's a $5,000 shirt. Or then it's a $50,000 shirt. Well, they're not even buying it a lot of the times. If Jeff Goldblum wears a Gucci shirt on, they, they paid him on to wear Jimmy it. Kimmel, you know, Jeff Goldblum didn't pick out the Gucci shirt. Gucci picked out the shirt that Jeff Goldblum was going to wear. Gucci and they, cloned Jeff Goldblum out of a pile of charisma and just formulated the most engaging and charismatic personality of our generation. And uh, all where our generation, but my sister watched every episode of Full House on Netflix DVDs when I was a kid. And so I agree, but I faintly remember him as an actor. I don't think he was in Full House. What was he? He was in oh no, he was in um well, so I know him from Independence Day and yes. Jurassic World, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park's probably one of the first movies I remember watching. Yeah. I would, he was in a Thor movie. I mean, he, he's in quite a few things, but I, he is very charismatic, though. And just his general just sort of ambiance as a person, and as you see him kind of on those talk shows, he just kind of imbues this this sort of lovable characteristic about him. It's, it's really weird to think about that from, from the outside, but having, having worked in casting. So, so casting is a thing in, in movies or TV and whatnot, where let's say Elsa in frozen two needs an actress. We would have auditions of all the people we could get a hold of for Elsa. And so we would see people all over the place to to try and get this role. And of course, I, I didn't work on Frozen, but the the Disney Plus movie Godmothered or Frills that's coming out, we did we did casting on that, right? So we would film a lot of auditions for these people to be on these shows. And most of the actors you got in are very good. You know, they're professionals that go to auditions regularly, have expensive headshots, and do very well. And you can tell that, but there's a certain group of people, and I don't know that you could pinpoint it or explain it, but within two seconds, you can tell they're not supposed to be on camera. And, and again, not to say they're not supposed to be on camera in that they shouldn't be on TV or whatnot, but there's a certain screen presence and engagement that you have to have 
to be compelling on screen. And I don't think it's even necessarily being good looking because I think there's a lot of beautiful people that don't look great on camera. And I think there's a lot of people that look great on camera that aren't necessarily beautiful. But I think that there's some independent component that just makes someone watchable in in and you know just enjoyable on screen and i think that charisma is this elusive element that i don't think you could really decide or quantify but i think that at a certain point that underlies how engaging or how how relatable a person that you've never actually interacted with can be or it's like george clooney like how do you get such a charismatic person like I think even more than Jeff Goldblum. Like George Clooney is the best looking person alive. Like <laughs> I would actually, because what's interesting about him, right? There's he's, people. He's gotten more attractive as he's aged. Well, that's too. what that's what I was gonna say. Is obviously there's models in in people that are on the runway and underwear ads and all this kind of stuff that like if you put in a painting might be perfectly symmetrical in all of this. But I think that for George Clooney. To have been a pretty good looking guy like 30 years ago to just perpetually get better looking as he gets older, seemingly effortly effortless. Mm-hmm. That's that's crazy. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, man. Good yeah. for he's so he's so charismatic, too. I'm I'm totally fanboying George fanboying George Clooney right now, but he's kind of the man. I, he's a billionaire. He has his what, he made five hundred million dollars. By selling a gin company. That's a power move right there. He has, I mean, his wife is just an amazing attorney. She just gets things done. I mean. I think he would be one of the best political candidates that wasn't involved in politics. Because I think that occasionally someone like Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger, for instance, is an example. Or... There's just different people and, you know, Donald Trump and a lot of people that have come outside of the political establishment. Yeah, kind of the quintessential. To, to get a big following immediately. And I think that he would be very good because he checks a lot of the boxes that are important for a politician. You know, he's, he's charismatic. He's famous enough that his, his viewer base or, or fan base would be somewhat built in mm-hmm. just by lieu of it. He doesn't seem to have done anything weird. People know him from movies. His wife is obviously a very impressive and an accomplished woman. And he's a self-made billionaire because he acted so well that his gin became popular enough that it just was worth gold. (laughs) That's lit. Yeah. I mean, I think he should do it. I think more than anything, what we need is just a president that, that is the president in independence day you know what i mean that can just make those speeches like at the end of the movie just be like yes i would vote for i would vote for the the president in in independence day i think it's really funny how in campaign advertising you have to say directly who pays for it Mm -hmm. and i think the laws on that have to be pretty good because it's always paid for by one of the major candidates or someone that you've at least heard of you would think that someone might just make a random corporation or something with an abstract name to sponsor these political ads or candidates. I've seen corporations or organizations. I guess I've just never seen anything where I'm like, what is, 
What is this? I did see one which I thought was pretty interesting. It was the, it was like a Christian group, and they were just kind of promoting voting in general. They were they were just like, get out there and and vote because I think voting how, is good. I think how chic and important voting in in apolitical. And again, not that voting's ever apolitical, but I think a general movement and environment that encourages political participation on any side, I think that's really important and beneficial to society. Oh, most definitely. And like, you know, you see a bunch of random, like like sneaker ads are really into it, where it'll be <laughs> this really hype, like pump up mix talking about like voting and patriotism, but in a- such abstract terms that literally the only onus of the commercial is to go out and vote, which at the at the end of the day affirms their brand and makes their sneakers worth more. Yeah. That's crazy. I want to buy some sneakers and vote. <laughs> at this point, our podcast does not have any sponsors. That said, in this next segment, we will be trying our multicultured soaps from Whole Foods, Live On Air. Daddy Bezos, if you are listening to this, we would be happy to be sponsored by you. Get ready for a good lather. Wait, you're not going to eat it, are you? Okay, so looks like he's going to wet his hands with the soap. He's getting it going. So looks like it's he's getting a good lather out of it here. You know, just really getting it going. Now, I'm a good, you know, probably two meters away from Truett at this point. And, you know, I can I can already tell that he's a lot cleaner than he was before. Uh, just, I mean, in general, the grime from his hands has been washed away. The, uh, the dirt that he normally carries around underneath his fingernails has all but gone. Done! It was very quick, I do have to say, your your use of the soap. It was uh you know, you definitely got in your your ABCs. So after after Nick successfully watched me wash my hands with this soap, I'm gonna successfully watch Nick watch his hands with this soap. It's the ND five hundred of dirt. Oh my gosh, look at Nick. His hands are so dirty. He's just just been Look at Nick, he's so dirty. He's just been scratching his butt cheeks all day. He just like you know, like, just, like, rubs his armpits and smells the stink to see what they are. Oh, my gosh, though. He picked up the soap, and he's going at it. Oh, my gosh. Scrub, scrub. I see a good lather. I see a bubble. I think that the first barrier in a piece of soap being malleable or usable enough is the lather. You know, because if not, you might be rubbing chemicals and essences and oils around yourself, but you're not necessarily getting what you need to out of the soap. And I feel like right now I see that developing. And for those of you at home, the bar of soap he's actually using is, is black. And it's a charcoal-based based soap, which sounds, sounds interesting, but I think that the flavor that you get from charcoal smoked or cooked meats or other, other vegetables and fruits, a lot of it is a particular flavor. And so I think that translating that flavor into a more, you know, more, more taste-based medium might be difficult, but I think at the same time, there's a lot to be gained in doing that. And he finishes. So I do have to say, though, with my uh, qualifications from earlier, or my, my 
sort of descent on expensive soap use. The one thing that I can say is that Bath and Body Works soap is just so worth every single penny to have your hands smell amazing after you use the restroom. It's really incredible. The difference between that and, say, like soft soap is really remarkably notable. What do you think, Druitt? Well, I think, I think, could you pass me the Roku remote? Yep. The thing is, with something like that being valuable or expensive, will you hit the light too? Yes, I can. Um, one of the things is that you wash your hands so much as a person, you know, like... Hopefully. Five to seven times a day at least, right? Like, you should Hopefully. be washing your hands. But because of that, every time you wash your hands with the soap or a bar or a liquid or anything... That's an experience you're very familiar with. Uh And so it's one of those things where if you have the process, you have the motions and everything, and you change one element, you know, like an independent variable, that element being a different soap, in, in changing one piece of that, you're intimately and fundamentally aware of the underlying difference. And so it's one of those things where you don't even necessarily know what you were missing out on before, but you can find it and realize it when you wash your hands in different ways. Well, and the thing is, too, you, you know, if you shower with a very expensive soap, that's something that you use once. And then very oftentimes I kind of see that, you know, just naturally just you know, the scent kind of just kind of dissipates, you know, over the next couple of hours. But by washing your hands very repeatedly with with soap, you know, that scent kind of stays with you. And whether you like it or not, you know, you kind of touch your face quite a bit throughout the day. Uh, it, you know, it becomes a part of you. Yeah, it, you just kind of encounter your hands a little bit more than, you know, say your shoulder where you're, washing yourself or something like that it's actually interesting because the olfactory sense being being that of smell is psychologically the closest to memory more so than sight more so than touch more so than anything so if you smell a if you smell a particular fragrance such as i think play-doh is a great example i think that whenever you you breathe play-doh and you smell it you're you're transported back to when you used to smell it. And so a lot of people recommend whenever you go on a vacation wearing a specific and new cologne so that whenever you're off the vacation, you can smell it and then go go back in a sense of deja vu. Mm. Deja vus are just so weird. I had one the other day, actually. Deja vu. Deja vu. Wait, have you told me this story before? Maybe a couple times, but it's just weird because it's like oftentimes when I'm in a deja vu, I... What is deja vu? Deja vu is kind of like it's this situation where you find yourself, all of the experiences and thoughts that you're having in this moment for some reason register in your memory as having already occurred. So... As I'm experiencing a deja vu, oftentimes I will think to myself, wow, I'm having this deja vu moment right now. 
And that I am having a deja vu realization is oftentimes part of the deja vu and makes the sensation even stronger for me, which I find very interesting. Well, I think that I think that minds have a surprising proclivity to recognize patterns. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's one of those things where if you can think that you were in a similar situation and the setting was also very similar and that there were, you know, like a necessary parallelism there, not parallelism, but a necessary symmetry. I think that if you're thinking of something in an agreed upon framework, I think that you start to see other implements and aspects of it that just affirm that experience to begin with. Yeah, but I, I that kind of reminds me of like, I was noticing the, the other day I heard a phrase, uh, plaster of Paris. Okay. Have you ever heard that before? Mm-mm. I heard it once in the day. Plaster of Paris. Plaster. Like, Pla- like, like, like plaster, like the walls are plaster. Yeah. And so I heard that once maybe about two o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. And then that evening when I was watching Jeopardy, plaster of Paris came up again. That phrase. That specific and unique phrase. That specific and very unique phrase came up twice in the same day. And I think that happens very often. I don't know if it's just you noticing the, the new word that you learned, the new phrase that you learned or, or came across, or this new concept. But I don't, I don't know if it's you just paying more attention to it in general, but that happens to me so much that, that I'll, I'll find out something and think, huh, you know, that's interesting. And then I will see that same thing refer you know it'll come up in my daily life right you know multiple times in the in the next coming days i think that i think that one of the things with that and one of the reasons i stay motivated to read and learn and do different things is because i've heard that whenever you're not thinking about anything your mind is subconsciously trying to answer every problem it's ever had and so, you know, for instance, what you're saying, you hear a saying or something and then you you register it immediately later. I think that a big part of that could just be an artifact of being aware that you would recognize some sort of pattern in that thing to begin with. Uh-huh. And so I think as as strange as it may seem, if you if you're thinking about it as something that's novel and new to you, you can almost assume that that thought came out of nothing. But what Are you if, saying like it's new to the whole world because the world is just kind of what my perception of it? Well, I think that, you, you might have internalized something that you deemed as novel and then at, at the offset of something not been able to, to perceive that it was actually a meme to begin with. Oh. Meme being... What's a meme, Nick? We talked about this. We talked about memes. You got to go back. In in comics in the 80s, um, I actually haven't read any comics earlier than the 80s, but I'm reading The Crisis on Infinite Earths right now, which is like a DC crossover event. And what I've noticed is that certain characters will mention different backstories they have, and it'll cite the different issues of the comic series they were in, which I think is definitely interesting but if that was before you could just look up every single issue online, 
if I said, okay, check out the Blue Beetle issue 59, you'd either have to happen to have that copy or buy it at like a ridiculous, ridiculous secondary place, which I think is, I think that our ability to engage with comics has sufficiently increased throughout time. <laughs> I've been really into graphic novels and comics lately. They're they're a very interesting medium. You need to uh you need to borrow Batman Year One from me. It'll I, take you an hour to read. It's really not particularly long, but that's the first graphic novel I read where I was like, "Wow!" Like, I actually took a uh, graphic novel English class. Oh, you did in college? Yeah, I didn't realize you read in college. I didn't read too much in college, to be completely honest. But no, it was it was uh it was at uh uh UNT. Okay, uh, aunt, aunt. Uh, but yeah, it was it was basically a English class where all of the all of the books that we read were graphic novels, comics, uh, manga, uh, different things like that. Uh, it was very interesting, and it was it was taught by an amazing professor that you could tell very. You need to say their name to honor them. Um, you don't remember. That's rude. I am very sorry. I had him for two semesters of English. I'm pretty sure they're not listening, though. Uh, if they are, they're heartbroken. Spencer Smith was my high school teacher, so that might have been yours, too. Uh, he was so cool. Like, he legitimately got me interested in reading. But carry on, Nick. It'll come to me. But he was very invested in the topic. You know, you could t you could tell that that graphic novels might have been his first kind of really getting into literature and things like that. You, you know what I mean? Well, at a certain point, it's the first artistic medium that you treated with a sincere, um, like, sincere reverence. Yeah. Like a fervor or yeah, you passion. were, you were willing to react to it and take it seriously. And I, yeah, Sorry, go on. But I mean, that's pretty much just it. It was just it was it was a very unique class to be taking and and just kind of getting all of these uh all of this exposure to graphic novels that I hadn't been exposed to before and from somebody that truly loved the medium. It's it makes, important for the person it makes showing the you difference. something to love it. It really does. Mm -hmm. Cuz it's one of those things where, you know, I I love cooking and I love food. And you know, obviously you know that cuz you've known me forever. But I think it's one of those things where I'll cook with a friend or something and and it's like they they wouldn't have thought to cook or do something like that on their own. But immediately you can pick up on why that would be enjoyable and like why it's something I do a lot, you know, and I think it's one of those things where if I was like, yo, let's play this video game, but it's dumb and I hate it and then made you watch me play it. There's no I'm not inviting you to react to it in an earnest way. Mm -hmm. And I think that I don't know. I think there's there's an importance of being earnest and I think that's important to kind of recognize. If you've never read an Oscar Wilde play, uh, you know, we're taught Shakespeare for the most part in schools. Oscar Wilde plays are hysterical. I'm I don't even not. think you I don't even think you necessarily need a big underpinning in literature or that kind of analysis to get it. I think it's just funny and appealing still. I think that I think that our obsession with Shakespeare is 
Okay, so first off, the biggest thing that affects someone being revered as one of the most influential and important artists is that they're studied the most. So, you know, if I want to be a kindergarten well, teacher or like a high school teacher in the average school. I think it goes hand in hand, though, to say that the most important would be the most studied. You know, I think I think maybe part of the part of it is being the first. Yeah. More so, you know, it's like Absolutely. it's like the Beatles, you know, one might not appreciate all of their all of the music that they put out, but they at 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 the very least they're like the first band to do heavy metal. They're the first band to do all of these different things. Well, and I think I think within an academic and critical framework of analyzing something like that, a a big aspect of what makes it something you can even legitimately commentate on is its history of being deemed comment, commentable. Mm -hmm. So I've I've written this spec script off of this book called Devolution. Long story short, Bigfoots come and have a snack. And one of the things the book talks about is that if Bigfoot actually did exist in North America, despite the huge amount of legends and mythology surrounding it, it could very well go undetected because zoologically and legitimate scientists wouldn't, wouldn't center their research and their career upon finding something that may or may not exist. Because if you wanted to go in the 10-year track and study zoology, for instance, you would have to do intense and very minute research on something. And at a certain point, you would just need to pick and decide whatever that might be for what it is. But if you were to say something like Bigfoot, you, you couldn't center your academic study and career based on something that you might not think exists. Because if you happen to not find it, you would be a complete joke. You know, and so the the statistical the statistical benefit of you studying that as a career would in a certain way presuppose the fact that no one would take that seriously. And so it's one of those things where even if there was a Bigfoot, despite the the folklore surrounding it, you would be you would be taking such a risk trying to find something legitimately that even if it's something you thought you might find the kind of person who would be perceived to take that risk academically or otherwise would be discredited in lieu of being that sort of person to begin with. Well, I from the get-go, though, they would be discredited because, I mean, the whole entire field is no longer zoology. It's cryptozoology, which... What is, what is the difference? Because I know the word, but I don't know that I could differentiate them. It's, it's, I, it's just the difference between studying things that are definitively present in the world, I guess, you know, studying starfish versus studying uh, the Loch Ness Monster. It's so, I mean, it's a pseudoscience, you know, it's, it's like astrology. Or Okay, astrology is just like not real. A pseudo, like, a, did you say pseudoscience? Oh, you said pseudoscience. I thought you said social science. No, su well, social science is too. I, goodness gracious. I have my theories about psychology. Okay, but psychology is a meme. It's like, like psychology is a social science. Okay, 
I don't mind the qualification of social science, but I don't think economics should be considered in that category. Is is economics a oh yeah a social science? Oh yeah, at uh, a, yeah, at a yeah. certain level, I suppose it's mathematically it is. driven. Yeah, but in most discourse and and departments, ec- economics would be a social science. Well, I what is what is a social science for someone that's not in on this conversation to begin with? Well, I mean. I'm not the person to really... No, but you are. Okay, so... You're on the spot. My definition of a social science would be something kind of uses data and analytics to measure uh, the the social uh, ebbs and flows of society and, you know, for... It's like an anthropological analysis of humanity. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think they would all use mathematics, you know, because psychology, you know, a lot of data, a lot of, you know, a thousand people that we studied in this thing, in the survey had, you know, answered this question or something like that. But, I mean, have you ever taken a survey? I of- haven't. Like, I got called for, like, asking if I smoked cigarettes once. And I spent, like, five minutes on the phone to, like, mess with them. And I just hung up at a certain point. Who earnestly takes a survey like that? My big thing. Have you ever taken? Have you ever taken that Myers Briggs test? Yeah, it told me I was like the Joker. Yeah. So I know it's not psychology, you know, in its in its finest forms, but those things are complete jokes. They're basically like BuzzFeed quizzes that tell you how what your personality type is. And how you mesh with other people and other personality types. Well, and I think that someone that doesn't realize that could take a Myers-Briggs quiz and then assume that they knew everything about psychology, like, beyond that. (laughs) Well, the thing is, it's, it's these series of questions that you have to rate your agreeableness to the question on a on an arbitrarily defined numerical scale yeah so it's like on a scale of one to five one to be one being disagree three being moderately moderate and five being strongly agree you know how how do you how comfortable do you feel in a large group setting and it's like well now i have to I'm thinking back to a very specific time where I was in a large group setting right. and how comfortable or uncomfortable I felt in that moment, in that specific oh, setting. For some reason you can't run through that, but sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, but it's just this, I, I think it's these very arbitrary things because I am not, you know, defined by, that How particular perception yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not tied to this one thing. And to suppose that by answering this question, you can decide how... I, I'm not capable of saying how I feel in all all large group... Uh, oh, that was a good shot. In all large group In the way that that can dictate you going forward Exactly, as well. exactly. And for them to say that my question, my answer to that question is completely 100% valid. It's a, it's astrology, but instead of having like a, a space backed explanation, it's the promise of a scientifically sufficient reason. Exactly. And I, I think too, a lot of people take these quizzes, they read their results and it's much like, fortune telling or what ghost reading or 
or palm reading or whatever like that. But where they, you know, you'll have this person, this fortune teller that will be like, you will do this thing and this thing. And it's like, oh, it's these series of vague responses that just so happen to match up with their life. Well, it's it's stimuli. It's giving you the chance to evaluate in a particular framework of. Yeah. That I think is very... You're you're very capable of picking up on patterns whenever you're looking for them, especially if you don't know what to look for, which is how I think the stimulus, like stimulatory overflow of things can really mess with people. I think that lottery tickets are really funny because you're paying money to enjoy how bad you are at math for just a moment. I heard an interesting quote about uh, lottery winnings the other day, and it was, it was to do with how, uh, you know, oh, why do all uh, lottery winners, you know, why do they lose their winnings? Why so, is that, so quickly? Nick? Well, you know, you have to think about it. You know, it's the type of person that plays the lottery is not very careful with their money in the first place. You can really suppose that that kind of person would be the type to, to spend all of their money on Kit Kat bars. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's really true. And I think that it's a very similar demographic of people that have pit bulls. Pit bulls as uh, a dog breed. <laughs> no, really. Pit bulls as a dog breed are not inherently dangerous. They're they're smart, they're trainable. All of all of these things, they really are sweet dogs. Mm -hmm. But we think of them as being so dangerous because a lot of pit bulls do attack people and get out and are very angry. But I think that the kind of person that has a pit bull is kind of like the kind of person that plays the lottery and is kind of like the kind of person that drives a motorcycle. Mm. You know, the kind of person that is, is attracted to any of those things is probably the kind of person that would misuse that thing to begin with to attach the negative stigma at its core. That being said, though, it would be very nice to win the lottery. Right? I would also do that it was at this point that the batteries in our recorder cut out this has been the decadent entertainment podcast thank you so much for tuning in